Tonight we're talking about how we source fish and shellfish from Chesapeake Bay and nearby Atlantic fisheries. It's important to note that the Chesapeake Bay provides 50% of the total blue crab harvest in the United States, and each year the Maryland seafood industry contributes some $600 million to the state's economy. Beside blue crab, the Chesapeake is a source for striped bass, oysters, soft clams, flounder, perch, spot, croaker, sea trout, and bluefish, as well as more recent arrivals such as blue catfish and snakehead. Tonight we are pleased to welcome a distinguished panel featuring T.J. Tate, the Director of Seafood Sustainability at the National Aquarium, Lee Duncan Carrion, co-owner with her husband Captain Richard of Coveside Crabs, and the legendary Tony Conrad, waterman and owner of Conrad's Crabs and Seafood Market. And now I'd like to turn the program over to Dana Slater, the producer of the Origin Speaker Series. Hi everybody, how's everybody doing tonight? Good, good, welcome uh, to the ninth installment of Origins. I'm happy to say we've got eight under our belt. We have a great, great program planned for tonight. Um, I'm Dana Slater, by the way. If you don't, I know most of you. Thank you very much for coming, and especially for those like Judy Newman, who's been to every single one. I think the trips right, have been to, how many of you guys been to? Five of them. <laughs> My husband's been Dedication. to most of them. <laughs> the Griffiths have been to about five of them. So anyway. Tonight, I'm just happy to see so many familiar faces, and I just wanted to say that I spent many uh, summers on the Jersey Shore, and uh, I was very fortunate to always have fresh local seafood available, and when I started moving around, I realized that purchasing decisions just became incredibly challenging. So hopefully tonight, we will sort of shed a light on how to go into a local fishmonger and actually buy something local and fresh and sustainable and keep looking at me (laughs) (laughs) so let me just uh, quickly run down who we have tonight on the panel and spike will get into a little bit more about their backgrounds as we go Uh, we have captain right (laughs) tony conrad uh, the owner of conrad's crabs and seafoods uh seafood restaurants and market and market okay uh i Crabs almost exclusively from Tony, so I can vouch to say they're wonderful. Not one darn thing. Here we go. I knew you would start a war right there. I never met Lee until tonight. Don't expect a Christmas card. Why am I in the middle of this? All right, and then we have T.J. Tate, who uh, is the Director of Seafood Sustainability at the National Aquarium. Welcome, the, T.J. I'm a peacekeeper. <laughs> and we have Lee Carrion, who is the owner with her husband, the intrepid, it, intrepid Captain Richard. Hey, y'all! <laughs> I think I'm the most of you, but if I didn't, we'll talk later. <laughs> so there you go on that one. Um... I just wanted to say a couple of things. We have a photographer and a videographer from the National Aquarium here tonight. So if anybody does not want their photo used in commercial, uh, for commercial purposes, uh, please let me know, and we will make sure that you are not photographed. Otherwise, I'm assuming you're all good with that. <laughs> um, you're all famous now. So um, I just wanted to, I always take a few seconds, this is a collaborative effort um, to put these origins on, and there's a lot of people behind the scenes that make this possible, so I just want to just acknowledge all the people that make it, make it happen. 
starting with uh, Spike and Amy Charity, uh, allowing us to use this wonderful facility and this restaurant and have a wonderful thing going here, I think. So thank you, Spike. Um, and then Hannah, where's Hannah? Hannah Reagan, always the most incredible person behind the scenes that nobody ever sees and acknowledges. So I always like to give a huge shout out to Hannah. Um, and then we have uh, Lauren who, at Paven, who is the manager here at Artifact Coffee, and her wonderful staff, who will be serving and taking care of us tonight. So they do a great job. Just wanted to thank them. Uh, Mark Eldridge over here is our radio engineer, and he volunteers his time to do this. So we're incredibly grateful to Mark for all the time that he gives us. Yeah. And two, two others, Sean O'Shea provides all the flowers for us. Uh, she is with a company called The Floral Studio. So if you're ever in need of flowers, The Floral Studio, look them up. Um, and lastly, Mary Romeo, where's Mary? Over there, does our Facebook page. Um, so if you haven't liked it, it's Origins, a speaker series. That's the name of our Facebook page. So, uh, one other thing, uh, what do I want to say? I wanted to say that, oh yeah, the, the important thing about tonight is that for those of you that don't know, the proceedings are being recorded. Um, and then we create a podcast from, from the discussion, and that's uploaded to Heritage Public Radio. So if you want to hear any of the past episodes, just Google Heritage Public Radio slash Origins, and they'll all come up. Okay. Um, let's see. April 28th is our next one. Uh, we're taking March off because we're going to Thailand. <laughs> we all are? The whole we are? <laughs> What's our departure? So April 28th, we have a great program. It's going to be on the sort of the tra traditions of the Chesapeake. And we have uh, a fellow by the name of Bernie Herman, who is the chair of the American Studies uh, program at the University of North Carolina. He's done a lot of work with the Southern Foodways Project. And partnering with him will be Tom Gallivan, who owns Shooting Point Oysters uh, on the eastern shore of Virginia. And I'm hoping to find somebody that grows Heyman's sweet potatoes. So if anybody knows anybody, let me know. <laughs> so without further ado, I think I'll turn it over to Spike. Is there anything I forgot? No, that was great. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well, this is uh, welcome as always to the friendly confines of uh, Artifact Coffee, and this this uh, conversation is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. We have some of the titans of the uh, the local seafood scene here in Baltimore, uh, along with T.J. Tate, who's relatively new, but has, 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 has made herself indispensable. I think, Lee, you have to let yeah, me get through sorry. this, and then and then you. Uh, well, um, who has made herself indispensable in this conversation um, about what we should be eating that comes out of, out of the bay and out of the ocean. Um, for me, I'll go back very quickly to a, uh, um, a moment when I was a young chef. I'd opened my first restaurant here in Baltimore called Spike and Charlie's. Uh, thank you. That one. And uh, thanks for hanging in there. And uh, it was a very uh, quiet, cold night. And... Um, just painfully slow, and we, um, 
we were back in the kitchen and we got word that there was a four top that had sat down and not only that but it was the president of the city council so we were like pretty excited um and we waited for the order to come back and waited and waited and nothing happened and uh looked back out in the now empty dining room and asked the question what you know where'd they go and it was a two-word answer no crab cakes we had i decided to make my uh, statement as a young chef and in baltimore not serve crab cakes and learned a really important lesson <laughs> that night um and uh um which was great it, you know and it just it was instructional in that crab cakes incredible fresh uh fish and shellfish from the chesapeake bay and and dining in this incredible city that we call home are inseparable and tonight we have three people i think that can speak about that uh in a way that very few others um, can. And I'm really excited to have this conversation and, and kind of hopefully advance this conversation because there is, I think, a tension or a paradox in we live in Baltimore, we live here on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, internationally recognized as, as, as one of the great um, regions for seafood. One of the, the bay itself is one of the great sources of fresh fish and shellfish in the world, historically. And it's not easy to great, get great fish and shellfish from the bay anymore. And that's, um, that's troubling for me as a restaurateur. That should, I think, uh, give all of us a uh, reason to think about you know, the fish that we're eating. Um, and as Dana said, it's, it's not as simple as, as often it, it seems on restaurant menus or in the, in the, in the supermarket. Um, so I think Lee wants to start off with about an hour-long discussion of uh, crab, crab sex. Crab sex. This here for crab sex. Hey! Uh, but actually, before we... That was a little teaser. Before we do that, I'd really Shot like to... down before I even started. I would love for TJ to kind of just set the stage for this conversation with maybe a, a, just a, a summary of where you see, you know, now that you've spent some time with us here uh, around the Chesapeake, where and you've done amazing work tj one of the things i've been most impressed with is is her ability to bring everyone into the conversation and you're not going to have an understanding of what's going on with 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 um the bay and with and and fresh seafood from the bay and and the whole kind of sustainability conversation unless you're talking to everybody and i've never seen anybody that can bring people together like tj so if you could just give us a sense of what you've learned at this point and where you see you know kind of a uh, a state of the bay and state of the bay seafood summary for a second. That would be, I think, that would be really helpful. Sure. Um, well, I'm going to take it one. Talk to the microphone. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take it one. Thank you, Spike. That was um, puts me a little too high up on a pedestal. So I'm going to try to live up to that. Um, but I'm going to take it back a step before I, we really think about the bay and think about seafood overall. So everybody knows the benefits of seafood. Uh, we've heard, you know, it's heart healthy, lowers your blood pressure, can help fight obesity, all of those great things. Um, so then we look at the recommendations. USDA dietary guidelines say that we should be eating three to nine ounces a week. Okay, so what's three ounces? That's like a woman's hand is three ounces. That's not a lot, right? Um, 80 to 90 percent of us fail at that in the United States. And then when we are eating, I'm just throwing some numbers at you to kind of paint the picture. When we are eating seafood, the majority of it is, comes from 1,500 to 3,000 miles away to get to your plate. So think how far that is. And 91% of that is imported. 
okay, look where we live. So think of that picture that I just painted for you. We're not eating it. And when we are eating it, it's not from here. And it's coming from a long way away when we live in one of the most productive areas in the United States. Okay, so then let's think of the world in general. So by 2050, we're going to have 10 billion people in this world. And everybody hears that and we talk about food security. So we have to double our food production. And like, let me get this stat right. We have to double our food production so that in 40 years' time, we can produce more than we have over the last 6,000 years. So that's a lot of food. So then with all of that information I just gave you all, before we even think about the Chesapeake Bay, you think, so can our resources withstand that? Can we teach people how to eat seafood and eat it sustainably for the planet and for the person? And can we feed those billions of people that are all going to be sharing our planet? And I think in short answer, it's yes, we can. And yes, we do, and well, we must, because we're not going to let people go hungry. So then that comes back to what do we have going on here at the Chesapeake Bay? What we have is some really good stuff happening, and there's a lot of bad rap going on. You hear bad stuff in the paper because bad stuff sells media. It sells social media. People get involved. You don't hear the good stories. You don't hear how populations of fish stocks are coming back because we have good management. We have electronic reporting so that we can have data capture. We have people like these guys who are on the good side of the table for commercial watermen. Their stories don't make the press. They don't make they don't make the headlines. And I'm not picking on the press because I love y'all and you know who you are. <laughs> um, so the, the the state of the bay is actually one that needs to be a positive and we have to embrace eating food that's from here and that's part of what the national aquarium and i'll talk about this more because i'm taking up too much time but that's part of what the national aquarium is uh, seizes our job is to get into this discussion and redefine local seafood for y'all because i think that's gotten lost and you know you have the monterey bays of the world and they're on the west coast Uh, you don't really have anybody informing you about what's really happening in the bay with your seafood and how to help you make some of those choices. So that's what I'm here to do. That's what the National Aquarium is here to do, um, and we could talk about that more sure. a little bit later. Thank you. So, Tony, you were, like, the first waterman that I've actually, like, spent time with on the water. And I think for a lot of us, the Chesapeake Bay is this place that's, that's, that's out there, um, we know that there's there are crab and there are rockfish, there are oysters out there, um, but it can almost feel like um, an abstraction. It's it's not as real as for us as it is for you. You are a guy that goes out there and and brings home rockfish, crab. Uh, we're gonna have yellow perch that you caught as part of our supper tonight. Um, can you talk a little bit about what life as a waterman is like? It's fun and easy, and I recommend everybody does. <laughs> Um, I mean, taking a step back, I, uh, it's, we were talking earlier about the restaurant business and how it's a sickness. And somebody, anybody that lives or is, is here at this uh, gathering tonight that's been in the, the restaurant business, you know what I'm talking about. The, to be a waterman, it takes it like 
10 steps forward where you can't sleep at night because the next day you can't wait to see what's in your crab pot or what's in your nets or, um, you know, what, what the next day is going to bring. I mean, I went to college, I got the education and I had my parents dreams of, you know, you're the first, you know, the second child in the Conrad family that has got this education. You need to take it and you know, become a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. And, but I, as a child growing up, I also had this passion that when I would go from school, I would finish my homework really quick and I'd get on my bike and I'd ride to go fishing. And um, when I found out that there was a commercial um, fishermen in my family, I wanted to experiment with them and see what they did. And I got their side of the picture and the actual working habits and what they did. And I was like, this is really cool and this is really fun. And Fast forward 20 years, I get married, and I'm living that that thing that my parents said to do, which was get a job and put that shirt on and that tie and go to work and work 40 hours a week and come home and tell your wife you love it. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, not, not, not my wife. I mean, I love her. But the, the working part, I mean, it, it stunk, and it was good money, but I was like, I wasn't happy. So I, was, I, I took a couple steps back, and I was like, what makes me happy? And I started... Uh, crabbing more recreational, well, it was business, but I called it recreation to my wife, and it turned into a a six-day-a-week before, you know, work, and before you know it, it was, hey, you know, Cousin Billy, can I use your commercial license because I want to, you know, start catching more crabs than I'm allowed to catch recreationally, and one thing led to another, and I said to my wife, I think I want to quit my job, and I want to catch crabs for a living. And she looked at me and said, what? You know, it's like, you know. so, um, I mean, it's, it's just something you're, you're drawn to, and it's a, it's a sickness. And the more that I do it, and every year I get into it, I love it more. I'm more passionate about it, and my passion has grown more, too. I want people to know the beauties and the you know, resources that we have right in front of us, like TJ was saying, and help them understand that they should be eating more what they have in front of them as opposed to going to, you know, the food store and grabbing the fish from China or Taiwan that was thawed out, I mean, wherever it is, and eat what we have here because they're missing the the boat. And I, you know, just love doing what it is that I do, and it's a sickness, and... What do we have here? You're catching, you got perch right now. You're going yes. out, you're breaking ice, you're catching perch mm-hmm. and fike nets. Sure. What else? And then go, go through the season a little bit. Yeah, we, uh, we start in January. Um, we'll start going through our fike nets. Fike nets are a type of net that uh, there's little to no, uh, I would call it hurt to the fish if they're undersized or if they're not the species you're looking for. They go right back over the side and grow up to be big fish or they're not the species we're allowed to catch. Um, so that's flight nets. We do that straight through till the middle of April. Uh, we'll actually catch the bait that we're going to use as well with the fish that we sell for people to eat. Um, we'll load our freezers with the bait, um, then get right into, cra- right into crabbing, usually around the second week of April. We'll um, crab straight through and fish on days that we can get away with fishing when we're not too busy crabbing or sloughing soft crabs, and that will be rockfish, which the season runs until the middle of November. And then that's what they call hook and line, which is a fishing rod and reel and a hook. Um, and then in 
December, we'll switch over to commercial rockfish gill net, which use actual gill nets, which uh, extends, overlaps into the January season. And started all over again. Wow. Y'all have a cheat sheet in there of, of, of what is actually in season in February. That you are, you've, uh, I've often heard you say that you kind of married into it. Oh, right? Lord. <laughs> well, y'all, as you can see, I'm right in my prime middle age. When I was about 45, I found myself falling madly in love with a Chesapeake Bay crab boat captain. And as I decided to move my life from Northern Virginia and my quaint life as a schoolhouse teacher, I was told that I would join the business and own half of it, and my duties would include meeting and greeting people, and y'all, I'm pretty good at that. And then when the boat docked in the afternoon, all I had to do was put some crabs in a little bag, take their money, and, you know, bye, bye, bye. And so I said, how hard can this be? This is better than teaching physics. So I moved up here with our intrepid captain, Richard, and everything was great. Other people came. They were so nice. But the first day the catch came in, I had a little issue. I went in. The, the crew had gotten the crabs off the, off the island girl and had moved it into the walk-in. I had a huge line of really nice people. And so I didn't meet and greet all them. And I get in, I go into the walk-in, I'm all prepared, I've psyched myself up for this, I get my great big glove on, and um, our intrepid captain Richard hands me a bag and says, you know, the first order is for one dozen of the big boys. I'm like, okay. And he said, okay, I'm going to take the lid off. Now, remember, they're hot, they just got in from the base, they're not chilled down any. Is that a fine? And so he pops open that lid, first thing I saw, it's like an eight-inch claw coming like this, and I'm like... <laughs> Oh, 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 hell no. I beat the band getting out of that walk-in, y'all. I'm telling you the truth. I sat down in a chair. I handed. The, I looked at the next customer. I handed them a bag. I said, you know, I do appreciate it. Here's my glove. Y'all just go and help yourselves. And if y'all could just leave me a little bit of money on the way out the door, I'd be mighty right grateful. And that started my glorious commercial crabbing career. It did improve. But it took a whole lot. So by the end of the first season, I was used to the hard crabs. Little did I know that we had arrived in the fall, and I was in for a totally big surprise come the spring. Nobody had told me that these crabs do something else that are very entertaining. They moot. Now, I am a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, majoring in biology. And so I knew, you know, come on, they're arthropoda, of course they grow by Never thought of a crab that way. So then, should I continue with my talking too much? No, we're good. We're okay, good. good. The, so uh, then, yeah. one day in late May, one day in late May, crab sex, right? This is. I'm getting got to sex yet. Oh. One day in late May, our intrepid captain Richard comes up and he's bringing his his uh, catch in. He says, "Oh, I'm so excited! I've got peelers. Well, hot damn for you! That's great! I'm so happy. What's the peeler?" Well, it turns out a peeler is the <clears throat> stage in Bolte right before it becomes a soft crab, and it goes in various stages. I'm like, well, that's so nice. And he said, I know. You know, you, you, you need to come out and make up a bed in, in the uh, crab house for this evening. Me? What? He said, yeah, I forgot to tell you. You forgot? You're going to need to go through all of these tanks every two hours around the clock for the next five months. 
and pull out all the soft crabs as soon as they moat. And if it's over two hours, you got to put them back in the cove, and we'll catch them another day. But they've got to be premium. They've got to be perfect, and they need your individual attention. I said, well, how many of these things are there? He said, oh, right now we got about 600. <laughs> what? I've got 600 of these things like individuals that need my attention every two hours around the clock? I was already a mother of two. I was well aware of how much trouble two were, but 600? <laughs> Lord, I was in for an experience. And it was an experience, and I came a long way. But as the years went along, I fell deeply, madly in love with this species. If somebody had told me that crabs were just going to float my boat, second only to my intrepid Captain Richard, I never would have believed him. So I spent the following winter learning and reading everything I possibly could about crabs from all of the scientific research that's been done since the beginning of the 1970s to myths and mythologies from the watermen to personal stories and running around the state with the captain, who at this time was also a commissioner for the state, so I go around and talk to you know his peeps. Oh, but I have peeps of my own now, but not back then. So I was asking people all kinds of questions of what they wanted to know, and I began to learn a tremendous amount about the soft crabs. And I started studying my shedding tanks, and it occurred to me that I had a tremendous mortality, morbidity rate in the shedding tanks. It was topping 50%. And for y'all that go out, whether you go to a fancy restaurant or you, you, know, you buy soft shells, whatever, you know that per individual crabs, they are extremely expensive. And to lose 50% of my population, um, at least that much, w was taking a significant hit on my bottom line. Something had to be done. So, of course, the first generation Ivy League woman, the immediate thing I do is get out my dissecting kit and start dissecting crabs. Well, there's a problem. I'd left my lab down in Virginia, and I couldn't do the blood testing and everything else. The next thing I knew, one of my favorite people in the whole world, um, Eric Schott, who has a Ph.D. in Harvard in his crab biology, he started hitting waterman's boards looking for somebody that would be willing to work with him in researching what was causing the death rate in these shedding crabs. For the, I'm like, sign me up. So we've worked for years together, and I'm very pleased that we've made significant progress. I can report that as of last summer shedding season, our mortality rate was less than 1%. We went through a, a series of things. My initial thoughts was that I had so many that they were crowded, so crowding, of course, leads to increased mortality. What we found is something very interesting that I could not have done without his expertise. There is an ancient, and it's always been present, virus, a retrovirus, that is in the soft crabs. And when they're out in the bay in their natural environment, they're not all clumped together. Now, of course, they, they are cannibalistic. They will eat each other. But this is a blood-borne virus. So when they're fighting and if somebody breaks blood, then that spreads the virus. And, of course, if they're in close containment, then that's more true. One of the solutions that Eric and I, Dr. Shaw, and I came up with together was to bring in the peeler crabs, which is, as I said, the immediate stage before they become a soft crab, bring it in near to the moat point. So in other words, 10 or 14 days out, we have what we call green peelers. Actually, they have a little white line on the middle section of their swimming back fin, but they're called green peelers even though it's a white line. 
And it, that line will change colors as it nears the moat, so we know how close they are. That's, we stop that's bringing... That's mold. Okay. M-O-L-T, y'all. Making sure y'all understood that. It took me twice, and I'm it's, Southern. <laughs> it's when the crab dumps its shell to grow, because it gets real stuck in there. I love to do this demonstration. As they approach when they're going to get a new shell, what happens is... Let me ask you a question. How long do you think um, a blue crab lives? What's the average lifespan? And Yankees, don't forget your lobsters have nothing. No, thank you. Okay, anybody get a guess? Three years, brilliant. That's absolutely the correct answer. How many times do you think they grow over their three-year lifespan? Anybody got an idea? How many times they become soft shell and then they get hard and then they get, what did you say, once a year? Once a year or twice a year. Any other ideas? They do it about 27 times in the course of the life, which is for males only. The females are different. So 27 times they're going to do this. And each time they feel the need to grow, they're all jammed up in that little shell. So they need to get out of there and grow a whole new shell. So they go through this molting <laughs> process. Just making sure we have understanding. Oh, I appreciate that, TJ. Okay, so um, as they get closer, we found that as they got closer, they're less likely to, to, to pass on this virus, and we were able to do that. We also found that the crabs that are in enclosed tanks, in other words, they're not open tanks that use, for example, bay water that dumps out and recycles, and closes off the natural ecosystem, do better in mortality, too. And so we've made all those changes. We have published the papers. You can find them on the Internet. And we have started to try to expand what we've learned in this process to other watermen that are involved in the shedding of the soft crabs to improve our industry and to prove, improve, the, hopefully, the future of what the soft crab harvest will look like as, as we move into the next generation and hopefully many generations thereafter. So that's one of the things that we're involved in. Okay, I yield. <laughs> I can't I even remember the question. Neither can uh, I, but... Um, we didn't talk about sex. We haven't talked about sex, but I haven't gotten to sex yet. So we'll hold on to that one. <laughs> um, you know, one Poor of the cool, cool things about you guys, uh, Tony and Lee, is that you both are... You know, and the intrepid Captain Richard and Tony both go out and you guys catch your, in this case, crabs and you sell your crabs. Right. What has changed? Maybe Tony first. What have you seen in these last few years? You know, I think we're, the bay is at a critical point. Um, Chesapeake seafood is still highly revered, but, but things are changing and things are challenging right now. What have you seen? Uh, if we're going to focus on crabs and what we've seen the past three years, yeah. I mean, it was it was very challenging. I mean, it's as, as I said, you look forward to every day to wake up to what's going to happen. You can't wait to go to sleep that night because you can't wait to wake up the next morning. And it's been the it's been a, a series of ups and downs in the past three years. I mean, very serious peaks and very serious valleys. Um, three years ago, we had a a very good report that came out from the Baltimore Sun and. I, you guys have to all remember that Governor Malley got on and, and was extremely proud about the, the crab stock. And Virginia then jumped track and said, this is going to be a bumper crop year. And it was. And it was fantastic. And we all were catching, you know, two, three, four-inch crabs. And we all, 
as Waterman were saying, this is going to be a fantastic June, July, August, September, October, November. And it was exciting. We then had three consecutive tropical storms in June and July. I think it was two in June, and then the third one came in the first week of July, and it dumped a record amount of rainfall in the mid-Atlantic area. So as a waterman, you are extremely excited about the highs that are about to happen because you see all these little crabs that you're constantly throwing over, and you're thinking, this is my future you know, harvest. And at the other side, you're saying, oh, wow, Mother Nature's about to just... Like, Destroy that. Yes, yes. And we all cross our fingers, and we hope nothing bad happens. And there's this wonderful uh, item at the north part of the bay. It's called the Conowingo Dam. I call it Satan. <laughs> there's 27 floodgates, I believe there is, and then there's eight or nine uh, turbines underneath well, the amount of water that comes out of there is it's, it's incredible when they open a flood, floodgate up. In July, we were catching beautiful crabs. I mean, we were catching seven, eight-inch crabs as well as the two- and three-inch crabs that we saw as the future for the next you know couple months. We saw this is going to be a great fishery. The state has done a fantastic job bringing it back. You know, the watermen have done a great job of you know, we increased our size, we decreased our female harvest, we did everything that we were supposed to do, and then Mother Nature throws this curveball. And the second week of July, lo and behold, they opened 25 floodgates. It wasn't all at once, but it was 5, and then 8, and then 11, and then 20. And we went from catching, you know, great numbers of crabs, which great in uh, retrospect of where they should have been, to, I mean, nothing. It went from, you know, a, a bountiful number to we couldn't even catch a bushel of crabs. And so what, one second, what, so what is that? The crabs are being killed by the fresh water? They're, they're, they're not moving? Or they're going well, straight? crabs can swim. However, the speed of the, the volume of the water that was coming out, and they said it was second to Agnes, which was however many billions cubic, whatever, coming down. And the crabs couldn't swim fast enough. The ones that tried to bury, which most of them probably did, but not even the scientists know because nobody has a camera on each crab, they were then smothered by the, the silt, sediment. that the yeah. sediment that, was, that came down. And if you look at the NASA's you know, shots of what the Chesapeake Bay looks at, looks like before a storm and after a storm, you're just like, wow. I mean, that's a lot of sediment. That's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a huge tool being flushed, and there's nothing that you know, can move fast enough to get out of its way, and if they do, they're getting destroyed. The oysters got you know, destroyed. Everything got destroyed. So we you know, got our, you know, our resource was then destroyed, and a lot of other things that would take a lot of time to talk about happened. And then that fall, we then had Superstorm Sandy. So if you think about all the crabs <laughs> that got flushed down, and at the same time you had that you know, huge hurricane that came up the coast, I mean, it was it was like a, a one, two, three, four punch that year. And for the past, you know, three years after that, from that July on, it was, I mean, it was depressing. I mean, you'd go out there and you'd be lucky if you'd caught, you know, six, seven bushels of crabs, which is not enough to pay your bills. So that's a natural event where that's been happening for millennium where no. you get, we get massive amounts of fresh water washed into the bay. It's because of the dam. The dam. So the dam that creates it. 
the amount of sediment that's behind the dam is is the problem. It's not the amount of correct. Yeah, the 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 shots from NASA show to go down there was Tillman Island. I mean, you, yes. I mean, you can see the the sediment track that's on there. Is it NASA or is it NOAA that puts those pictures? No, both of them. They both Sorry. do, but it's primarily NOAA. Um, <laughs> so, okay. We built the satellites involved. Oh, hey, this so, so and seeing that, and it kind of it, it. The following year was, we saw it when it started in January with the perch fishing, where there weren't any perch. Um, the the crab season was it, there was no crabs, and it wasn't until that September when we were supposed to have our fall run where you know you saw a couple crabs. The following year, which was uh, two years ago, we saw a couple of crabs in the spring. They were the leftovers from that fall, and there was a small push. And then this past year, it was a very difficult spring. Well, it wasn't as good of a spring, but if you watch the news, the Gulf Stream came extremely close to the United States last year, which eggs, when they, the females, when they go down to the mouth of the bay or wherever they are in the coast, and they lay their uh, larvae, and they follow the current. Well, the Gulf Stream was extremely close last year where the crab larvae followed that. And last uh, summer was actually a very uh, normal summer from probably the middle of July on. It wasn't great, but there was, again, it was a good sign. We saw a lot of small crabs. There was a lot of uh, good signs for this year. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and say that, you know, this year it should be normal as long as Mother Nature doesn't uh, dump on us. So it's tough. And then you look at the the papers that say that the crabbers over-harvested the crabs, and it has nothing to do with, you know, you know that as a, as a whole. I mean, you could probably put that into a picture of years past, but in the past five years, there was, I mean, there is no crabbers left. I mean, when I say that, I mean, it's a, a, a small percentage of what it was 15 years ago. It's, mm-hmm. it's impossible to say that it's overfished. It's, it's just, so then it's, in terms of sustainability of crabs in the Chesapeake Bay, what do you do? You uh, pray that there's uh, not too much water that comes across that dam, or you try to get the sediment removed from behind the dam, which I think the state has been actively trying to do, but Pennsylvania doesn't want to. refuses to pay that bill. Mm-hmm. And the amount of chemicals that are behind the dam, they're saying if they touch the sediment, mm-hmm. then that's going to come over. So it's, and they've, they've acknowledged that it's a, it's a problem. And they said, yes, we need to do something about it, but they're not doing anything about it. So then we, as you know, watermen, just pray that there's no storms, that <laughs> the dam doesn't open up. May I add something to that? You yeah. can. Captain Richard has um, a theory on that. Thank you. Um, about 40 miles or so upriver, and this is the Susquehanna River, in case y'all didn't know, um, there is a plant that is a producing a neurotoxin specifically for killing insects, mosquitoes in particular. During these massive storms, we believe, and certainly our intrepid Captain Richard does, is that they had a significant amount of, of runoff that contained this neurotoxin. And in case y'all don't know, the crabs are in the phylum Arthropoda. So that makes them like third mountain North Carolina kissing cousins to the insects. I'm not talking about sex yet. Um, <laughs> What we think is another component of that is one that was caused by hu- humans, thoughtlessly. 
that this neurotoxin entered into the river, and as it was rushing, in addition to what you mentioned, the, 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 the physical um, nature of the water and the sediment and all that, but if there was even a small amount of the neurotoxin that would kill anything within phylum Anthropoda, it would knock out the crabs as well, or any shellfish. All that mollusk that's in there that we use, for example, razor clams for bait, all of it gone. But no one is investigating that. But we as watermen, we know what's going on, but no one wants to hear what we have to say. There was a, um, a diver who actually does, uh, he does work on, on ships in Baltimore, and he was, the year that this happened, he was doing uh, an investigation at the Bay Bridge where they were worried about all the trees and whatnot coming down and hitting the bridge, so they hired his company. He actually dove down, and there was, I mean, it was just feet upon, you know, piled high of dead crabs that were piled up at the north side of the bridge. It was released to scientists with either the Maryland Department of Natural Resources or whoever. It got washed away, and once well, they washed away, the news of it got washed away. Nobody reported on it, and nothing ever became of it. But, I mean, we know why. But you think those, are the, those crabs were all killed by the... Either the sediment... Or well, a, a, probably nobody. a combination, combination of both, but it's not just one thing or the other. So when you're asking the question, we don't ever look at this problem as myopic. There's always a series of things that happen that lead to one catastrophe or a multitude of them. But the, the same, the, it's always true in the natural world. There's not one single event that can devastate a species. If that was true, it would have been extinct as a species many, many times over long time ago so it takes a series of these things so yes we had the devastating storms and they devastated all of us but combine that with with um pollution from farms runoff and then like i suggest that that the intrepid captain richard does that there's a neurotoxin involved then um there was also a lot of mountain snows those snows melt and they come down and again this is a watershed so those rivers flow into the bay You've got major fluxes of, of temperatures where temperature really does affect the crab salinity, much less so except for the females to release um, their eggs. But change in temperature is, is devastating. And so it's a series of events. It's not, it's not, there's no way I can give you one answer because there isn't. And the solution is going to be found in having a team from many different um, expertise get together and seriously look at the problem with a desire to solve it as a collective, where everybody from different fields can sit down and do that. And TJ, I'm, I must tell you, um, for the first time ever on the East Coast, she had in October a lovely event, which was our first ever East Coast Seafood Forum. Seafood Forum. Um, <laughs> Jeff Spike and I both were invited to attend, and then all these brilliant everyone, scientists, watermen, um, middlemen that are own restaurants and, and care about this, environmentalists, um, political people. She got us all together for an entire day in one room, and it was an incredible event. I will be invited to the second one, right? And we do hope you'll join us next October. <laughs> well, but, but, but that's what it's going to take to solve problems. But And what she's talking about, there are different kinds of data that scientists can collect. So mm -hmm. there's fishery-independent data, 
which is the data that the scientists go out and that they capture. There's fishery-dependent data, which is the information that comes from the watermen. And a lot of times the scientists have just negated that fishery-dependent data. And it really has to be, if you look at any science that's going to work, you have to have a collaboration between the two. And believe it or not, for the DNR and for NOAA, that's a relatively new thing. So um, I came up here from the Gulf of Mexico, and for the first time ever, we basically forced them, because we volunteered our boats, our commercial fishermen volunteered our boats and said, bring your scientists, let us show you how we collect data as fishermen, you show us how you collect data as scientists, and let's try to merge it all together. And the two were talking completely different worlds. This was just three years ago. This wasn't a long time ago. And, you know, the scientists were saying, well, we need to sample this way. And the fishermen were saying, if you sample that way, you're not going to catch anything. That's not going to tell you anything. And so you have to get the experts like these guys working with the scientists if we're going to solve any of these problems. And when people always ask me, what is sustainability when you're talking about seafood? Well, it's not a product. It's a process. And what they're talking about right now is the process of how we get there. I think it's astonishing. I mean, and you hear it. I'm learning just as I'm sitting here, you know, how much we still have to learn about, say, the blue crab, for example, you know, in particular. It's just there's so much about this animal that's so central to this fishery, so central to kind of our, I think, our identity here in Maryland and yet there's still so much that we have to learn. And now we're adding these kind of new wrinkles into the, you know, if it's a neurotoxin that's somehow getting released into the bay or, you know, new environmental or, or climatic uh, conditions. Changes, uh, Yeah, and it's, it's – and now we're, we're having to learn even more. Um, it's kind of – again, I kind of want to bring it back to the, to the more specific, the more <laughs> tangible, uh, if we can. Um, Tony, you go out and you set pots. Correct. How many pots do you work? You record it right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's not an appropriate. Is it question. not? No. Why, why is it not? You're, you're, well, how much do you make a year? It'd be on the same category. Now, 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 uh-huh. now. So the state of Maryland allows you to have a license, and there's uh, three different allocations: there's a 300 pot, a 600 pot, and a 900 pot allocation. That licensee has to be on the pot for you to work them. That's you have a to bad take. Bad phrase. I don't do drugs. <laughs> no. Has to be. Let's say on the boat. 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 Okay. Um, has to be on the boat in order to work those pots. In other words, I can't say that my wife has a license. I have a license. She has a 900 pot license. I have a 900 pot license. That would give me 1,800 pots. But she has to be on the boat for her to have her 900 pots, which is a nice way to do it. So, I technically have a crew member that has a license. I have a license, so we each have 900 pots. So we have, at any time a uh, week, 1,800 pots working uh, at a time, which is what you need to have right now in order to try to – well, excuse me. You don't need to have that, but you need to have more pots than less because there's not a lot of – in a time where there's not a lot of crabs, you need to have so many pots strategically placed in the bay because – Crabs migrate. They walk. They swim. They crawl. They bury. They get up. The tide changes. They get up. They swim. They crawl. You never know where they're going to be. So not all 1,800 pots at one given time are catching crabs. It's probably 20% of your pots are really catching the crabs. So 
it's a benefit to have more pots because you can be where the crabs are at certain times, then you're constantly moving them around. It's like a game of shuffleboard. So 1,800 is the easy answer, but why? So you don't think that's overfishing when it's not because they're not all catching crabs. Most of them are sitting in a bad area getting slimed up, barnacled up. You're constantly picking them up. You're putting them on the roof. You're moving them from the Magathy to Love Point to Love Point to the West River, and you're, you're constantly trying to find them while the water is shifting. So what was your original question? That was... Uh, <laughs> All right. What should I... How do you, you guys fish the entire bay? Who, us? Yes. No, no, no. Um, what we do is a, a little bit different because Tony's operation is, is much, much larger than ours in that he also purchases from other commercial crabbers in the bay and, and outside the state in, in a big operation. At our place, it's just... Um, the Island Girl is our, our big crab boat. It's not our only one, but it's the one that goes out every day. And we are on, without answering your question directly, we pull about 330 to 340 pots per day. They're on a three-day set. And then because of our um, plan, our, our game plan of what we do, we only do a very high-end premium product. So that means even though there are very few, and Tony's correct, crabs to be harvested, we'll throw, depending on what point it is in the season, up to 90% of our crabs back into the bay. If they are not, kiss your mama perfect. They're going right back in that water. So that puts us in a very unique niche that we have made the choice, the conscious choice. Even though there's nothing wrong with what we're putting back, they're just not good enough to be sold at Culveside. So we don't do it. So that means that we are so selective in everything, and that's with everything, the hard and the soft crabs, that um, that's just our, our niche. So there wasn't anything wrong, and there's certainly nothing illegal about keeping everything that, that you catch as long as it's a legal size and the time of the crabbing season and all that. It's just not what we do or how we do it. Yes, ma'am. We just have a few questions back here for a sec. I feel like I should say this in a southern accent, but I live in Baltimore, so so I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> we'll give you a class. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the True Blue program and, and when it started, who organizes it, what you think of it? Well, uh, True, True Blue is, okay. yeah, I mean, just, so True Blue is a program that started with the Department of Natural Resources here in Maryland. It was, it was really about, um, I'll tell you right where it started. It started at Woodbury Kitchen. Um, with me and uh, Steve Vilnet, who was working at the DNR at the time, and with uh, Richard Gorelick, who was writing uh, uh, restaurant reviews and, and, and food um, articles for The Sun at the time. And he asked us, Richard, uh, to um, do a little crab tasting. And, we, and Steve got us some... Uh, I, I, there hadn't been Venezuelan or Indonesian crab in Woodbury since we opened, since ever. Uh, but he brought some of that in, and we had some, some great uh, crab meat. We did a tasting of the meat, and we did a tasting of the, of, we made crab cakes with all of it, and I was really happy, it was the first time I'd ever tasted everything side by side, that Maryland crab really, it's really, distinctive. it was distinctive, it was delicious, um, there were defects in the other meat, mm -hmm. um, and it really showed that Maryland crab meat is, is as special as we all think it is. Um, and I said on that, on the spot, you know, we should, there should be a way for us to, you know, to talk about this, to, to somehow brand it or, or identify um, Maryland crab meat at, for what it is and the name I came up with was True Blue that was 
um, and that's been used since then as a, as a way to talk about or for us to to identify crab meat that's been that's from Maryland, and that gets a little tricky. Sticky. Yeah, uh, because the Chesapeake Bay obviously goes between states, and um, there's a, there's a lot to that. Um, but it's more on the meat side, and neither of these guys do you, you don't pick, right? Or we uh, we do pick at the restaurant now. We have uh, six people that during the summer at the peak time when um, we we're catching a lot of. Uh, <laughs> Twos, females, um, we'll pick those and we'll put those right to go right into the crab cakes. The rest we buy 100%. I mean, it's not the quota of 70%, which I think True Blue is, but 100% of the meat that we purchase and that we actually sell in the wintertime as well, right. which will be nitrogen frozen Maryland right. meat, is yeah. 100% Maryland meat. It yes. comes from the uh, J.M. Clayton Company in Cambridge, which is the oldest crab picking house yes. in the state of Maryland, and it's the best meat there is so you go ahead no that's no i mean (laughs) lee go ahead no because i mean there was i think some like anything you know it was a well-intentioned program i think it it, it's still going i'm yeah it is i talked to joy who is the the uh new person at the dnr i talked to her this afternoon um as i mentioned earlier spike and i are both commissioners on the dnr seafood commission and um, in our last meeting, actually, um, Spike was educating me about the origins of the True Blue program because I was not clear or didn't understand or something. But I was one of the first to sign up because at Coveside, 100% of our crabs, hard and soft, are nothing but what we call it out in Chesapeake Bay. And to be viable in this program, it was 75%. And then Spike, um, Jeff Spike explained that it was originally just for crab meat. Now, we do four things at, at Coveside, and I think we do them very, very well. One is obviously we're running a business. I mean, we have a family to support, and, and like uh, the Conrads, we're a family. Um, number two is we educate, and we are passionate about that. Um, number three is that we are very active in Annapolis and, and trying to clarify, and, and Captain Richard sits on more commissions and more committees than I can even remember. The only thing I, I can tell you for sure is that those nights that he travels from Dundalk to Annapolis, I get the TV, the computer, the clicker, all to myself, and there's nothing fighting going on, um, but he does that quite a bit. So... Um, and then, obviously, the fourth component for us is research, which I volunteer a tremendous amount of time to do that research. So my understanding, back to the original point of True Blue, is that when I talked to Steve Vellman, who was then the director of um, seafood marketing for Maryland Department of Natural Resources, that it was going to include all crabs. In other words, hard crabs, soft crabs, and crab meat. That has, since he has moved on to another endeavor, and now I understand that that's why that 75% was the goal that they had to get that much. Crab meat is a very different product than the whole crab, whether it's hard or soft. What our intrepid Captain Richard and I have been doing for many years now, we've been trying to get legislation passed in this state um, to get Hard and soft crabs, leaving the crab meat industry to their own because they are a very unique thing and present different sets of problems. 
but we want to get hard and soft crabs mandated by law in the state of Maryland that they are labeled as Maryland crabs if they were landed in the state of Maryland. I've been, I can't tell you how many times in front of the delegates and in front of the Senate and argued this. What absolutely befuddles me, well, frankly, a lot of things befuddle me, um, but besides, I can walk in to Five Guys. Y'all know what Five Guys are. You know, the little hamburger and, and, and French fry place. I go in there, and I can buy $3.50 worth of French fries. Not only do I know the farm, the farmer's name, what state these potatoes were from, and those cost me $3.50. Now, if you come down to Coastside and you buy a dozen, which is actually a baker's dozen, um, crabs for $75, I've been arguing in front of everybody, my God, the consumers are bright people. They should have every right to know where their crabs are coming from. They do not need to be lied to. They should not be treated as, as, as naive children. And they should have this right. Well, so far, the restaurant industry has shot down our legislation year after year, and it's not coming out of committee. And I would like to share with you, and this is one of the reasons I agreed to be here tonight, unless we can motivate the public to feel as strongly as we do that y'all have the right to know where your hard-earned money is spending crabs and where those crabs came from, something needs to change. And without y'all's support, we're not getting it through. Or North Carolina, or... Indonesia, yeah. Now, y'all know President Obama is pushing legislation to stop the import of crab meat without it correctly being labeled, whether it's from um, Southeast Asia or it's out of Venezuela, but that doesn't go far enough. And the crab meat industry is something very different than what I'm talking about. Because if you're not buying them steamed, if you, you want to know that your live crabs, where do they come from? Did they ride down here on a jet out of the Gulf and land at BWI? Because they drop those off all the time. Did it drive up um, 95 and got dumped in Maryland? And now there's nothing to stop people, particularly middlemen, from calling these Maryland crabs because there's no legislation. There's no consumer protection in place. And I find that disturbing and disheartening. And as a southerner, I would like to suggest, Father, that it amazes me, and I told the Senate down there in Annapolis, it amazes me that those brilliant folks out of the state of Georgia can manage to market, label, and brand their sweet onion, that Vidalia, as being a true Vidalia onion, and all the others you can buy are sweet onions. Now, we're talking about an onion, but in the great state of Maryland, we can't brand our crabs so that y'all get to choose. Do you want the cheaper crabs from North Carolina? Because it also affects us as watermen. When those flood of crabs come up the, up 95 from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, our prices as watermen have to drop because now we're competing in the market against them because these crabs are not delineated between what is local out of our Chesapeake Bay versus what is coming out of uh, the Pimlico Sound in North Carolina. And until I can get everybody saying, you know, hell yes, we need to brand our Maryland crabs. We are Marylanders and proud of it. And until I can get pressure put on people to stand up and say, we don't want to be told any stories. We don't want to be lied to. We don't want to be misguided. 
We want the right as consumers to have the option to make the choices for ourselves and our families. Is this going to come up in the state legislature again? No, we didn't even try it this year All because right. I didn't have enough support. So let me just try to bring this back a little bit. TJ, you, you've been – no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. You know, tra- this kind of really comes back to traceability. Yes, it's it does. something you kind of – which is important, I think, across the industry. If we're going to talk about this stuff, if we're going to take the, the whole idea of sustainability, sustainability seriously, we're going to have to know where, where our fish is coming from. Do yeah. you have any kind of – can you provide maybe perspective on that? To, in two well, minutes, yeah, we're, we're running, we're, we're running yeah, short yeah, on time. I'm imagining, but, but yeah, but um, but but Lee is right, and, and traceability is um, that's a topic first and foremost. I mean, the president created a task force, and they have come forward, and it was a good first step. But they stop at our border; they're not doing anything past that, um, you know, with imports. But what it's done is it has gotten all those people that you've been talking to for so many years. All of a sudden, they're going, "Well, hell, the president is." created a task force and it's important enough for us to know where it gets to our border and country of origin labeling. So does that mean that Maryland finally needs to step up and institute some type of traceability? And so the people that have been pushing this issue are finally stepping up and starting to say yes. And that is the legislators. And so traceability is like the biggest buzzword key issue out there all across seafood. And I can't implement a full-scale traceability system, but the National Aquarium is going to work really hard to give you the information through our program, which is just now growing, and it's called Seafood Smart. So I'm going to keep saying that over and over again because my goal is for you people to become Seafood Smart, which means that you should be able to know where that crab is coming from and that you want to purchase it from one of these guys because you want to support your local watermen and you want to know that they're selling it to somebody like Spike. So we want to be able to connect, not dots, but lines for you of that seafood supply chain. And we're not taking away choices. We, we absolutely recognize that crabs from the Gulf, crabs from the Carolinas are welcome in our state. All we're asking is to correctly and honestly identify where they were harvested and then let the market um, powers that be regulate what the pricing is and stop hurting the economy of the of the uh, watermen that must sell to middlemen because they don't have, you know, a, a, a market of their own, or they must dump them off in Jessup. Well, and I, and I think you as consumers, what I hear is you that you, you should choose. You want to choose. Yeah, you want to choose to support people just like them. You just don't know exactly how. I think True Blue is a great program, and I think it came out, and the best thing that it did was to create some awareness. It got people talking for the first time. It got restaurants excited about traceability doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing or a costly thing. It got people wanting to support the local economy and the culture and the community. So I think it was a great first step, and I think we need to embrace it. And keep it moving forward. And I know from the National Aquarium standpoint, I'm working with the DNR hand-in-hand on how we can embrace True Blue, make it stronger, kind of fold it into our program so that we're all working toward the same thing. You're the consumer. You don't want to have to get confused with different programs and who's doing what. You want to support the community. You want to eat seafood that's from here. You want to eat sustainably or responsibly harvested seafood and you want to know how to do that without having to get really confused without too much information 
And so that's our job is to try to make that simpler for you. Thank all of you guys. I'm really um, moved and excited by what I'm hearing from you. Um, I uh, personally, I usually don't get to, to get uh, uh, wet uh, except when I'm at the aquarium as a volunteer scuba diver. Uh, so um, thank you. I thank w- you. Wish I were spending more time out on a boat. Um, tomorrow morning. Take... We're going tomorrow morning. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> take this up uh, 600 miles up and look down from space on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and uh, at NASA, we work with our uh, very dear and esteemed colleagues at NOAA, uh, providing space-based observations of the of the place that that we all love so much. Um, what I'm what I'm wondering is uh, when you know you are you're talking about looking at NASA or NOAA uh, sourced uh, images and data products and things like that from time to time. Are there things that that you come across that you say, well, holy Mackerel! If Crab. I if I had if I had gotten this you know six hours after it was taken or a day after it was taken or a week after it was taken instead of six months or a year uh, that I would have been able to make better decisions. Uh, I would have been able to influence legislators. I would have been able to reach the public in some way because you know we 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 actually are aware that there's an awful lot of. Uh, earth observations that uh, that are made, and then uh, the expression is thrown over the fence. Uh, okay, we did this. I don't know where it went, um, but we might be able to do better than than what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 huge. I don't think it's going to help us if we, as watermen, knew because we know what's going to happen. There's nothing we can do to. Um, catch more crabs or catch more fish because of what the pictures we see. We just know it's inevitably going to to come and it's going to happen. However, it would help for preventive maintenance in the future and it would also help for the general public, the scientists and the politicians that are writing these laws and taking the money from the lobbyists to, you know, are kind of, how they say it, in bed with each other that um, control these water treatment facilities. Yes, sir. Have a second. Um, with these water treatment facilities, which the state has been, you know, each state, I mean, multiple states have been given millions upon millions of dollars to upgrade their sewage facilities, have been given millions upon millions of dollars to control their water, uh, the sediment ponds that are coming from runoff from uh, black, I mean, to see where that water is going so they can have, you know, actual pictures to see, hey, this is what happened, you know, day one, day two, day three, when we got one inch, two inch, three inches of rain, and the millions of dollars we gave you to update this sewage treatment plant, where is it? Why didn't it go there? And why did all that water that went through that river, why did that power go out? And why did that sewage then overflow into the Bush River, then out into the bay? And we can see the the algae plumage on, is that the right word? On, On this satellite and like they can show one after another but it's not done we as watermen know that it's what's going on because we see it you know underneath our boat and but it's it, it's it doesn't jive so yes 100 percent. I, th- I think tony's absolutely right and it brings it back to the original point that we began we have got to bring the watermen our the regulatory table. um processes whether it's dnr and and no and others and the scientists together mm-hmm. and i would like to say 
that I couldn't be more pleased to represent both groups. I am an educated scientist. I am a proud Marilyn Waterman. And it is possible, but it's going to require open minds and it's going to require public support. There's a demand for us to work together because right now there's an awful lot of suspicion and politics involved. All that needs to move out of the way because it's about the future of the Bay. It's not about a political agenda or ideology, and it's certainly not about suspicion between sides trying to, to, to ruin the family business. and All that nonsense needs to go away. It's nonsense, and it's pollution, and it's air pollution, and people hear it, they embrace it, and then there's more of a divide between us. I can tell you right now, when we as watermen and scientists work together, good things happen. And the evidence that I offer in support of that is that my mortality rate is down below 1% when it was over 50, and that's within the last six years. Proof of concept. Yep. So um, I, probably most for, for TJ, separate from, from, so we've got, you know, the Conrads and, and, and Lee here and being able to say, okay, we, we've heard from them, so we know. I, you know, between my, myself, my wife, and when I've had family come down, we've had instances where we've, you know, gone to what we were hoping for is, is local producers. We, we've traveled to the, the eastern shore, and this wasn't seafood, but it was produce. My father came down. He said, hey, 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 there's a, there's a road stand. Let, let's pull over and see what we can get. And we asked, hey, what's local? And there was n produce, nothing local. How do we know when we, when we are trying to, to be seafood smart, how do we know as consumers what we should be looking for if we go to the grocery store, if we go to the farmer's market? I, separate from you know, being able to, to eat at Spike's restaurants, how do we know that we are, are being conscious consumers? If I could answer that, I would be a billionaire. <laughs> a billionaire with a B. Um, but but there are tools, and, and the first thing you have to do is literally what you're doing is ask. And um, one thing that we are going to try to create um, are tools that you can use. So a, a fish finder, so you can find out when it is in season. So you actually can click on it and say, well, they're, they're serving this and they're calling it fresh. Well, it, there, there is no striped bass right now, so they shouldn't be calling it fresh. And so that right there should be a clue. So they're are some easy things that you can do here locally, but then also knowing who are some of these reputable people. Um, when you look at consumer surveys, and I just left a whole bunch of really super smart people in a conference on the other side of the world, and all they talked about were consumer surveys and what the consumer is saying. The consumer wants to know this, and they're asking the same question you are, and all these smart people haven't figured out how to do that yet. Uh, but they're saying that consumers trust their chef. Consumers trust their retailer. And so you're not always, unfortunately, going to trust that farmer's market. And that's not the best answer. But if you do find those sources that you trust, and there are people like the National Aquarium who can say, we trust in Spike Jerdy and what he does. And we trust in Tony Conrad. And we trust in Lee Carrion because we have vetted them. And we see what they do, and we know where they purchase and who they sell to, and we can connect that supply chain for you 
then hopefully we've taken some of that question out of there. And until we have full-scale traceability all the way through the seafood supply chain, which is a long way away, but it will come eventually, there's still going to be some guesswork because seafood is iffy. Seafood is a messy, messy business, and there are a lot of smart people trying to take some of that messiness out of it for you. Uh, So that's not the be-all, end-all that you want. But But it's the goal of what we're trying to do. I dream of a day... When every one of you can get together under your backyard oak tree and be so confident that you went to your local waterman and bought this fabulous product that you can teach your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and say, by God, I know the waterman. I know where this came from. I am confident of this. And the captain and I spent winter nights dreaming about this as, as a real tangible goal For the future here in Maryland. But I do want to say real quickly, because I want to give a shout out, because there is a commercial fisherman in the back of the room. Hey, Alaska. (laughs) Y'all are better than we are. No. And and if you aren't at a reputable market, if you aren't at a reputable restaurant, and I know Spike's over there going, we got to wrap this up. Um, no, but but there are there are things called CSFs. So a lot mm-hmm. of you might be a part of a CSA, and you get your produce, you know, and or you go to your farmer's market, it gets dropped off, it might get dropped off at um, your your office. There are CSFs, and that's a community-supported fishery. So you can actually purchase and sign up and get your seafood, and you know exactly where it's coming from. Now, that's not um, an answer for all of spikes concerns maybe or a market's concerns but if you're trying to feed your family and you're trying to figure out a simple solution uh, csfs are are growing by and large and if you looked six months ago on a map here they were in north carolina all south new york all north everywhere else all over the country this was a big black hole there was nothing here now you have options. There are things here in this region. You have CSFs that you can buy into, and they're integrating with CSAs and farmers markets. Uh, so you can literally know your fishermen. Hi, I'm Rona Cobell. I work for the Chesapeake Bay Journal, and I guess I have a question about the press since uh, you all mentioned it. I just want to say real quick. Sorry, uh, Rona. Chesapeake, I didn't uh, say anything. The Chesapeake Bay Journal has written stories on everybody on the panel. Um, I got to go out with Tony, which was awesome, and Lee. You and, visited with us. And TJ, you're next. So, uh, oh. <laughs> um, can can but, I just say that what y'all are doing for the oyster industry is a, a applaud to you. Oh, so. thank you. We try our best. Uh, but my question is um, about the work that's being done in the New York Times and uh, the Associated Press that maybe you all are familiar with. They've done huge stories about not just the sustainability issue, but the labor issue and slave labor on these ships. Mm-hmm. Um, out in Asia and the South China Sea. And I guess my question is for all of you on the panel, we've been focused on the sustainability of the, of the seafood industry and the crab and the environmentalist, the environmental aspects, but is there a thought to maybe marketing the fact that we don't use slave labor here, that this is work done by families and by, and by watermen and by um, immigrants that are here legally on visas where it's all very well regulated and do you think it, that would make a difference in the sustainable marketing this is my alley okay go <laughs> so i think that kind of goes hand in hand with the with the true blue and, I, and what you're saying is something that a lot of us had uh been saying kind of in hand with uh 
the True Blue. There was something called uh, Trace and Trust, which I believe was also by Steve Vilnet. Um, and th- no, he was talking to them. That's from okay. the West Coast. Yeah. Well, he's what introduced them. I'm sorry, yeah. he, he, I'm sorry, he introduced yeah. them out here. Now, what it did was it said it had a stamp that was went with every box of fish. Crab legs, uh, steam crabs, live crabs, pick crab, whatever that said where the product was from, where it was going, who called it, the date it was called. So, and in saying that, you would know that it's product of the United States of America, so you don't have the slave labor, you don't or slave, slave labor. labor. Sorry, Lee, I had your accent. Um, <laughs> and you know where it was coming from, the date of it, how it was fresh, <laughs> and you know, and it kind of goes with the whole thing what we're talking about. How do you know that it's not a North Carolina crab? So if you want to. If you want to support your local Maryland, Baltimore County, or Anne Arundel, you know, Waterman, you can say, well, I know that this was called from this boat on this day, so on and so forth. So that's something I think we all need to push towards, and I think it was, it's been out there so that you kind of killed two birds with one stone where you you know you're getting the product that you want, and it's not from, you know, Asia you know, or slave labor ships or, or whatever. And so I, I completely agree on all accounts, and that that goes that speaks to the traceability question. And there are great companies doing traceability work. There's Trace and Trust. There's Trace Register. I created a brand of sustainable, traceable seafood from the Gulf of Mexico, where we tag every single fish. You can enter it into a website, look up the number, scan a QR code, and it'll link you right to where we caught it in the Gulf of Mexico. And you see the captain, you see the boat, you've, you can learn more about a fish than you've ever wanted to in your life. But, but, but we have a di- voice memo attached with hers where we say, hey, y'all, this is my crab. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that doesn't work for every Photos, species. Facebook, Coastside Crabs, I got plenty of them, you can see me holding them. But That's there right. are traceability standards that we can put in place, that we can promote, that we can market for this region mm-hmm. um, to let people know that there are dots connected. For example, J.J. McDonald is a distributor in this region. Uh, so it would come off of a boat. It would end up at this distributor. This distributor sends it to your retailer where y'all go shopping, or they would send it to Spike. They've done that legwork. They are connected in that traceability chain. They're tracing exactly where it's come from because they're tied in with a company like a trace register. So they're connecting those dots. You as the consumer don't know any of that. And that is something with Seafood Smart we're going to make you very aware of. So we are asking people to not only become Seafood Smart, but to become champions and actually challenge themselves. So to actually become a participant in the program, it's not just a little process. You have to fill out an application. You have to be vetted by a nationwide group of seafood and industry experts who are going to look through and it says, are you doing electronic reporting if you're a waterman? Are you traceable if you're a distributor? And, you know, meet standards. And those are the standards that we as the National Aquarium are going to share with you so that you can be more informed about your choices. Hi, this question is not policy-based. And I want to say my cousins are shrimpers, so y'all are making me homesick listening to you. Um, I was... I was just wondering with um, the toxins and with changes in temperature and fishing, I mean, how many shellfish actually live to the three years lifespan that you were mentioning? There isn't an accurate way to document that right now. What the DNR does is they do a winter survey, and it is based on a rather elaborate, I would say overcomplicated set of statistical analysis 
based on going out in January and February and dredging up the crabs and counting how many are in that individual. Then they use that to project what they think is bay-wide based on their sampling populations from various areas around the bay. Um, it's not the most accurate of measures. And again, as Tony indicated, any sort of graphic shift in various aspects of the, the, the physics of the environment, the chemistry in the water, um, a whole lot of things make an impact. The answer is we as scientists just don't know enough about the species to accurately predict what's going to happen and to be able to validate it through the scientific method to, to be able to answer that question yet. That is a goal, but we're not there yet. We've just had a major breakthrough that we've got the entire um, DNA of, of true Maryland, well, North American blue crabs, they're, they're sequenced. And there is a private organization in D.C., and this is going to be affect the, the uh, uh, crab meat market more than it will us, because they will be able to instantly identify if that's got Southeast Asia product in it, which is a swimming type of crab. It's not our beautiful blue swimmers. So that'll make it a lot better. And that technology of the DNA recognition of the um, blue crab has come a long way very quickly, and we expect that that to increase our knowledge exponentially within the next five years or so. Yes, yes. Most crab meat is, that's processed in the state of Maryland comes from female crabs. Most picking houses, female crab, which is a better tasting. It's a sweeter meat. It's a denser meat all around females are just better well um, some people we don't know any biological reason i get asked that question all the time why that would be true but there that is the myth that females are sweeter than than the male crabs but yeah so most human taste tests yes they are in like a smaller crab as, as for the year the, the age of the crab i'm a firm believer and i've always done it that i'd rather eat a five inch crab than the 120 dollar eight and a half eight and a half inch crab my wife won't eat a small crab because she's got to pick more, and she thinks that they taste better. Now, it comes down to what you think is better or worse. But if I take some of the crab that I picked and give it to her, she's like, wow, that's really sweet. That's really good. Not that her crab wasn't good, better, but the, I think that the smaller crab holds more fat content because they're growing faster. As Lee said, a crab molts 27 times, but the first year it does it like nine nine times so it's it's constantly packing its shell and it's molting it's packing its shell and it's molting and once it reaches about that five and a half inch mark then it slows down that second and third year so i think it has a lot to do with when the smaller crab and most of the inexpensive crabs are the crabs that the picking house is picking because they have to look at well i have to now you know pay my workers i have to pay my insurance bill and i have to now sell this pound of crab meat but i need to be profitable so they're going to buy a cheaper crab which is the female crab or the smaller crab um, I don't think anyone can see me, so I'll stand up. Hi. Hi. Uh, so I had another question about how us as consumers can f buy some of the fish, the perch, rockfish, and the crab that uh, you're catching. Um, as, as you mentioned, there are places on the eastern shore and in southern Maryland that you can stop, and it's maybe not actually Maryland crab. And then That's in correct. restaurants, even in the Inner Harbor, it'll say Maryland crab, and I definitely know it's not. And it's not. Uh, people come from out of town to experience it, and they don't know any better. So um, while the legislation is being met with a lot of opposition because restaurant industry is really powerful and they have great lobbies, um, what, what's the best way that the average consumer can 
know what they're getting and have access to it. Uh, because Giant doesn't sell it, Safeway doesn't sell it. Those are Im- impenetrable, you know, massive forces to break into, and it wouldn't be cost effective for you to try to do that anyway. So, where would where should we go so we know that we're getting the, the good stuff? Well, I think you've got two great markets right here um, in Conrad's and Coveside. And so I, for one, I'm going to say start with these guys because you just got introduced to, to two of the top crab markets in the region who you know that you can trust. Um, and, and that's small, and that, that doesn't give you a whole big picture. But if you've got two that you can go to, that you can start with, that you can trust in a region, that's a lot better than you were 10 minutes ago. Ask us. You don't need to buy my crabs. I'm going to sell everything that, that Captain Richard brings in every day. But if you call me on the phone and you say that you're in Northern Virginia, do you happen to know some? We like other people. We know people. And if you're nice to me and don't call me something crazy, I'm going to tell you where I think you can go for a reliable source. I want you to experience what we get to experience. And the, the probability of you're being able to get ours on any one particular day is going to be low. So I'm going to do everything I can to help you find and source that. Call us. We'll talk. We love talking crap, so we wouldn't be here this evening. You know, we just wouldn't. Call us. We'll help you. We'll talk. We get to the Department of Natural Resources and probably once every two to three months now, and they check our um, the legality of our oysters. They check... Uh, sizes on crabs, they'll look for tags in the rockfish, um, look at the yellow perch now. And I've always said to the, every time that those officers come in is, why can't you guys try to, at your next meeting, say, hey, we came in, we audited it, you know, each location, and it was certified that they were you know, legal Maryland crabs because you had to have the bill of sale of where your crabs came from because if they're under five inches – you can have the bill of sale that says they're from Delaware, which should be outlawed in the state of Maryland. Um, if the oysters are a certain size, if they're undersized, you have to show what farm they came from, that, that so on and so forth. So why can't that be a public way for them to get on and say, okay, well, you know, these are the names of the restaurants that the department went out and checked. I want to go there because I know that they were checked and they were selling you know, legal you know, size Crabs are already doing it. They're already in, they're already checking. So why not tie it in? It's a it's a litigious. I know. I, I, yeah, yeah, I got it. But I'm saying that 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 would be a way to and do DNR it. DNR is already way over invested in what they're trying to do. Much less adding more to it. They simply don't have enough law enforcement agents. And I can tell you this because Captain Richard sits on the penalty work group that that monitors for sizes that are arguing for reducing. Um, Female harvest and not there's nobody that needs a five inch crab ever. We we have every right to harvest those until Jan, uh, until July fifteenth. We have never brought in a five inch crabs, but we're making those decisions. But you put the DNR in that kind of role because they're doing some um, of that. You open them to a, a lot of lawsuits, and that's the reason they won't do it. This in this society, it is so litigious. The last thing the DNR needs to do is go fight a lawsuit because somebody said, oh, well, these were definitively caught in the Chesapeake Bay, and then somehow, somewhere, it comes out that they, in the middle of the night, took some from North Carolina. You know, it's just, it's, it's terribly complicated. All of this is terribly complicated. With that, I think I might just uh, jump in. Um, we've got a, I, I don't think there's any better way than 
to, to put a maybe a cap on this conversation than to go eat some great fish and shellfish from the Chesapeake Bay. So we have some beautiful fresh salmon and some steamed shrimp. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, part of it is just, I answered a couple of these questions might be just kind of get a basic understanding of what's coming out of the bay, what's available from our nearby Atlantic fisheries. Um, it's, it's not a million species, um, and it's, it is, it's very seasonal. And you can get a, easily get a sense of, you know, right now we have, we have the beautiful oysters. We have the perch that, that, that Tony's catching. We do have gorgeous crab meat that was, was frozen, carefully handled, and frozen that's still really, really good. And we don't use it. We don't make big crab cakes out of it this time of year, but it was in the crab pot, the crab dip that we serve. Uh, so um, get a basic understanding of what's out there, and you're going to zero in on the stuff that's available. Um, and then you could then I agree totally. It's about talking to 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 these folks that sell it, and that they're gonna they're gonna give you the straight dope every time. So we're we have uh, David uh, Spiegel, our chef here, and I put put our heads together on what we hope is a really delicious uh, meal that features uh, Maryland fish and shellfish at its best right now. It's rockfish uh, from the Potomac River. It's Tony's yellow perch. It's some oysters and clams that we got. Uh, we made a beautiful stew with some of our canned tomatoes. Uh, we have crusty bread that was baked in the wood-burning oven at Woodbury, a couple salads to go along with it. We have local rice that was grown in southern Maryland along with potatoes and hominy to add to your stew as you see fit. Uh, hopefully you'll have a delicious meal, and we have a little buttermilk pie uh, to, to top it all off. And I can't thank you guys enough for being here, this incredible panel. Uh, your passion is, is, is so clear and so... Um, so recognizable in the work that you do and, you, and the way that you are able to articulate these, what are obviously very complicated issues around the, the fish and shellfish that we all so clearly love. I always forget to thank Hannah and Lauren and the team here that, that, uh, that, that puts this together for us. Uh, so I didn't want to, to do that again. Um, and, and thanks for being a part of this conversation. Thanks again for joining us tonight at Artifacts for our Origin Speaker Series. With thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Mark Eldridge for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.